Uh, we are uh, back again, uh, returning to our study in the book of Titus. So if you'll turn to Titus, uh, a book about the church's calling and every member's responsibility to do what? To be what? For those of you who have been around. Zealous for good works. Yes, zealous for good works. Uh, we are in the first uh, few verses of chapter 2 where Paul commands uh, Titus to speak and to keep speaking uh, not only about sound doctrine, uh, but the things which, as he says there, are fitting for uh, sound uh, doctrine in verse 1, pra- practical duties, uh, responsibilities that agree with, uh, that arise out of sound doctrine. And beginning in verse 2, uh, Paul prescribes a series of uh, binding requirements necessary for members of a healthy church to have uh, an evangelistic uh, impact. Uh, in other words, we could sort of go back and to pull, pull together everything that we've studied up to this point. Uh, if the church is not being led uh, by qualified men, elders, overseers, shepherds, and if those men are not, as verse 9 of chapter 1 states, holding fast the faithful word, uh, with, which accords with the apostolic teaching, if they are not exhorting believers in sound doctrine and not refuting or convicting those who speak against the truth, and if those in the church, the men, the, the women, the servants, the, both young and old, if, if they are not building their lives on sound and healthy doctrine, and if their character and their conduct or behavior is not flowing out of that doctrinal foundation, then the church will ultimately fail in its task of outreach, evangelism, and missions. So the, the, the letter, the book, is about, it's about our evangelistic task. It's about the impact that the church should be having in our community. And yet the, the emphasis, it, Paul doesn't say a lot about evangelism. What he does is he tells us all the things that ought to be Uh, going on in the church, the way the church should be functioning so that the church can fulfill its mission to preach the gospel and reach, reach the law. So this is sort of, sort of Paul's point. And I'll illustrate it with this. We, we refer to this, uh, as a process of ministry. And this is a tool for, uh, that we sort of bring up every once in a while. Uh, we use it in our membership class as a way to sort of describe our, our understanding of the church and how the church functions. And it's a way for us to evaluate the ministries of the church, to look at what we're doing as a church and to say, are we putting enough emphasis on this particular area or are we putting too much emphasis on something and while neglecting something else that's also very important? just helps us to sort of balance uh, what we're doing. But we begin with this issue of exalting the Savior. This is the great uh, commandment, uh, Matthew 22 uh, loving God. And so uh, as a part of this, you know, there's a lot of things that, that sort of I guess, are a part of that particular piece of the pie, a uh, high view of God, priority of worship, high view of Scripture, doctrinal soundness, prayerful dependence in all that we do, uh, sacrificial giving. So it's, it's all those elements of our expressions of, of love for, for the Lord. That, that is sort of the foundation. And then from that, we go to this issue of equipping the saints. And uh, this is the great uh, commitment uh, mentioned in Ephesians 4, our pastor referred to that last, uh, last Sunday in his, his uh, message. Also, Matthew 18, 
Uh, and this is our love for one another. This is, the, this is body life. This is the fellowship of the believers, the saints, uh, our exercising of spiritual gifts, mutual edification, biblical accountability, and in some cases, church, church discipline. Uh, so it's, it's, it's what we do and it's how we relate to one another in, in, in the body. Um, and then from that is this third and sort of final piece, this, this task of ours to evangelize the lost. This is the Great Commission, Matthew 28. It's our love for unbelievers, uh, which includes our call to be merciful and compassionate, uh, gospel proclamation, disciple-making, and church planting, and then sort of the, uh, we call this the great compulsion, Romans uh, 11, at the end of that chapter, Paul says, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. This is the thing that really drives us. This is all for the glory of Christ. It's, it's, uh, it's his work. Uh, it's, he's, the, he's the author, he's the finisher, and everything in between. Uh, and so this is what propels us. Uh, it's, it's, it's why we worship the way that we worship. It's, it's, it's why we do what we do here in church on Sunday mornings. It's why we do what we do out in the community. It's, it's for uh, the glory of, of, of Christ. Uh, so these first two pieces, exalting the Savior, our worship, the equipping of the saints, this is what happens when the church gathers, and then this evangelizing the lost is uh, what takes place when, when the church scatters. And I think one of the problems we have in, in church today is that we have sort of confused these. what is the purpose of the church when the church gathers. We've essentially turned the gathering of the church service into our primary way to reach the lost. So we're, we, 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 we try to get all the lost people into the church, and then we accommodate as much as possible, their preferences, their likes, their dislikes, uh, and in most cases, churches compromise the, the message itself. Uh, they forfeit and they give up and sacrifice a lot of things, I think the church calls us to do, in the body when we gather corporately on Sundays because they're trying to appease unbelievers. So what unbelievers experience when they come into a church should be very foreign. It shouldn't be something that they come into and they're like, hey, that was really nice and I enjoyed that. And uh, I, I was talking with someone a few years ago and I asked, uh, they told me what church they attended. And I said, well, you know, tell me about that. Tell me about the the, ser- the sermon and the service and, and what the pastor preaches and a little bit about it. I've heard different things, but you go there. And so just give me that firsthand experience. And and uh, the the way he described that, he, he said, yeah, he said, well, the, sun, the Sunday service was, uh, it was good. He said, the, the way I view it is that is that what our pastor shared on Sunday morning, he said, he, he could come into where I work, into a corporate setting. We could gather together all the executives uh, in that company, and that pastor, my pastor could come in, and he could share exactly what he said in his message on Sunday, and those guys would get a lot out of it. In other words, they would go, yeah, man, those are some great life principles, and, you know, that's, that's very helpful. So I, I challenged him with that that's, that's just not the way it should be. I mean, that, it, you know, it sounds, it sounds good when you think, of it, well, that, shouldn't they be helped, and, and shouldn't they get some practical tools uh, about living? And that's, yes, they should. It's just where, where's the offense of the gospel? What was it that the pastor said that would offend an unbeliever? And that's the problem. And so... If, that, if that's going on, then you bring all these people into the church on Sunday, and if that's, if that's the purpose of your message is just to 
give some practical helps and tools for to, to, to make you healthier and happier and, and, and all those things, then you've really missed the point uh, because the point of the church gathering is to worship Christ and to honor his word. And, and when unbelievers come into that setting, it should be something that's very different. It's, it should be something that they've never seen or experienced anywhere on the planet, honestly. And uh, there's just not a lot of distinctions uh, sometimes between the church and, and the world. So what people do instead of going out and sharing their faith, you know, see so if you're in a church that does that, then what happens is when you go out, you're not really sharing your faith. You're thinking, I've got to get this family to come to church with me. <laughs> it's like the, the issue at that point is we've got to get them to come to where we worship. We, they've got to come to, where, to, to our church. Uh, they've got to meet some of these people, and it's no longer being equipped on Sunday to go out to be scattered to proclaim the gospel uh, in, in the midst of an unbelieving uh, and, and lost culture. So this, this graphic, for me at least, it, it, it not only explains what we should be doing, it also explains why we are failing miserably, I think, in our evangelistic mission, in our evangelistic endeavors. Uh, I think the church is falling short in their evangelism because the primary goal isn't to collect blankets for the homeless. Uh, the primary goal is, is not to build schools or hospitals or orphanages. It's not to visit the nursing homes. It's not to donate canned goods to the food pantries. It's not to hand out bottled water at the local arts festival. Even though we do a lot of those things, that's not the primary goal uh, of, 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 of who we are and what we're about. The primary goal is to know God as he's revealed himself in his word. The primary goal is to love him and to trust him and to obey him and to worship him and to come together in a local church and follow God's leaders, grow together as a, as a body and as a family of faith to serve one another and be a people, as Titus will say, we'll get to these verses here in a few weeks, to be a people for God's own possession. And then to go out and to preach the good news and win the lost, and bring them into the church so that they can learn to glorify God. And if there isn't a local church, then our task is to train up shepherds and to train up men and elders, overseers that can lead and teach and equip and guard the truth and set an example of good works and plant a church that can reach that community or that particular region. So I, I think we've got our sort of our priorities all mixed up. I mean, we have a lot of people gathering, in the, even in our county today, gathering for, for, for worship, I think, that don't understand the purpose for which they're supposed to be gathering. And I think that rather than, than, rather than proclaiming the gospel and planting churches and training up godly men and functioning in the body of Christ the way that God designs, they get involved in a lot of what I would just call humanitarian-type things. I mean, they, they're, they're doing these things in their community, and yet they're not necessarily being faithful to preach the gospel. They've sort of fudged on that. They've watered the gospel down, and yet they're doing all this work in their, in their community to reach their community, but for what purpose? Um, so I think, I think we've got things uh, all, all jumbled up. Uh, I was thinking about what the New Testament says about evangelism and missions. It's interesting because you do have Matthew 28, the Great Commission, but before you have the Great Commission, you have the Great Commandment and you have this Great Commitment. So you have Christ addressing the issue of purity within the body of Christ and our relationships and how we're to be dealing with offenses and sins in the body. You have the 
the emphasis in Matthew on our devotion and love for the Lord, loving him with all of our hearts. And then at the very end, it's okay, you love the Lord with all of your heart, and then you love one another and you deal with one another in the body of Christ in a biblical way, and then go and make disciples. Because if you're not doing those first two things, you're not going to be effective at all in fulfilling what we refer to as the Great Commission. Uh, Even in the book of Acts, we have the church really functioning in unity. We have the church functioning in purity in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters before we really see the church scattering due to persecution and the gospel going out into the world. And so we see some interesting things going on actually in, in the lives of believers in the church before the church really goes about this mission of reaching the world with, with the gospel. I mean, not as if they weren't being witnesses in Jerusalem. It's just when you read the first few chapters of Acts, it, the emphasis seems to be on what God is doing in the lives of his people and what they're doing when they get together, and then how God ultimately uses that uh, in the end. If you think about the the focus of the New Testament epistles, I mean, I would challenge you, the bulk of what the New Testament epistles are about are doctrinal purity and integrity and relational godliness. Faithfulness to the truth, and that truth affecting the way that you live, particularly in the family of God, the way that you relate to one another in the church. That is the primary emphasis. Uh, I went to Revelation chapters 2 and 3. You might be familiar with that, uh, where Christ addresses the seven churches of Asia Minor. Two of those churches, he has nothing but commendation. There's nothing really negative said, no criticism about those churches. Christ rebukes five of the seven churches that he, he addresses, and it's interesting. He, he, re, he criticizes them or he reproves them or corrects them or rebukes them concerning their, that the fact that they've left their first love. He, 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 he re, re, reproves them because they've tolerated false teaching and false teachers. He reproves them because they have tolerated immorality and idolatry. They have a false sense of security. They're lukewarm. They're self-sufficient. But interestingly, not one word of criticism about evangelism. Christ doesn't say you're not evangelizing enough. Christ is saying you're not doing what you need to be doing in the church. You've allowed immorality and false teaching. You're you're, you're like the world in the church. The church is like the world. And I don't have to say anything about evangelism. Of course, that's not going to happen. Because if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing in the body, then your, your effectiveness in the community and in missions is, gonna be, is a, not going to be very long-lasting. Long you're not going to make that, that much of an impact. So I would say this. Doctrine matters. Uh, church polity matters. Uh, standards for church leadership matter. Your relationships with others in the church matter. Your personal character matters. Your contribution to this body matters. Your home life matters. The way that you conduct yourself as a single person matters. Your marriage matters. I mean, all those things are important. Those are the very things that that Paul's talking about. So as a church, you can say, "Well, well, do we do these things in the community? I mean, do we collect blankets for the homeless? Yes, we've done that. Do we support the local pregnancy center? Yes, we do. Do we... Visit the nursing homes? Yes. Do we work with our schools? Yes. Do we put on a picnic for the community? Yes. We do all those things. But we have to to realize that we're not the only ones doing those things. 
the Roman Catholics do those things and the Mormons do those things and so do a lot of other social and religious groups in the community, right? So the question is what sets us apart from that? What sets any evangelical church apart from other religious and social groups or organizations in our community that do some of those very same things? And I would say it's, it's this issue of Christ and the gospel. We are about Christ and his gospel. We are about doing his work his way because he is the head of the body of the church. And any time that the church tries to tell the head of the church what to do, or any time that a church tries to ignore the head or the Lord of the church, the task of evangelism never gets done. It doesn't matter how big the church is. So if you're not doing these things, right, if you're not, if you're not doing these things, if you don't think those things I just mentioned matter, then you can get as many people together as you want, but you're, you're going to fail at evangelism. Because what are you calling people to do? I mean, you're saying, well, you need to believe in Jesus and be forgiven, and then you bring them into the church to experience what? I mean, to experience a bunch of people that are fussing and fighting and, and bickering and not forgiving and jealous and strife and idolatry and immoralities going on in the church. It's like, obviously, we're not going to do that. I mean, obviously, our, our evangelistic efforts are going to fail miserably if, if, we don't, if we don't see the importance of these, of these, other, these other areas. Uh, any, any thoughts on that? You're awful quiet. You look like you're thinking, though. You look like the wheels are turning. Any thoughts? Just, well, several, but... Um, just one, Andy. <laughs> just, <laughs> just boil it down. Generation <laughs> from the time at which Paul and, you know, were, were, were discipling these churches, you see Christ coming back and making the observations you just made. So right... Generation one, um, it, it, you you have the issues that you're talking about right now, and you, you can read guys like J.C. Riles and and those writers that were you know 16th, 17th, 18th century, and the issues were exactly the same. J.C., I'm looking at his quote right now, which is dim or indistinct views of sin are the origin of most of the errors, heresies, and false doctrines of the present day, 1800s. It's a, a lack of solid doctrine regarding our absolute depravity and condition before a holy God, untaught and unpreached and undiscipled, leaves people thinking there's all kinds of ways to get to heaven. All kinds of ways. And good works is the natural extension of Mm -hmm. that. And that's just where we, every generation ends up over and over and over again. And the church is certainly more visible and more uh, broadly or broadcasted today with the with the means by which it can, but it's no different anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just the same same effort of saying to just dilute the truth that we were just hopelessly lost in sin and Christ saved us. And we ought to be thankful for that and doing those good works to be able to convey that message. It is to your point sadly to see how lost it is in quote the church today. Yeah, well I'm just saying most churches in our community, when they gather today, if we ask them, do you believe that salvation is through Christ, would say, yes. Do you believe the Bible? Yes. But then when you start talking about the ways in which people relate to each other or even the responsibilities of older women or the, 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 the roles of, of, of women, 
and wives, and you start getting into those relational things, and they're like, well, that's, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe this was just the first century. Maybe these things aren't for us. And we start to sort of tweak and, and soften and adapt what Paul's saying in every part of a, of a letter like this. And what we don't realize is that we're, we're giving up. I mean, Paul's saying you can't do what you're supposed to do in the way of evangelism if you compromise on these issues. But see, we think that we can give up on those things, and as long as we're clinging to just that one thing, we believe in Jesus. It's all about a relationship with Jesus. That if we just hold to that one little piece, that we can give up all these other areas of, of teaching and doctrine. And, and I'm saying you can't separate those things. And so what happens is, again, over time, the church just begins to look more and more, sound more and more like the world. And then at that point, what do we have to share? I mean, there, there's no distinction anymore. And so this is going on, folks. I'm just telling you, these, 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 uh, I mean, uh, th- these kind of compromises are, are taking place uh, every week uh, in churches all over. And it's not the same. I mean, there's, there are faithful churches in this community. I mean, there are men who will stand up today and preach the word. And I'm grateful for them. And I know a lot of them in this community. It's just, you know, we, we're... We're, we, we, we so want the world. It's, it's as if the church is just dying for the world to, to, to love them and accept them. And, and, and Shane, don't miss tonight. I mean, he's preaching in the book of Acts, and he's going to talk about affliction, suffering, persecution. And, and we, were, we were talking this week. So, you know, there's a lot of – I think he was even going to use this example tonight of some of the – you know, you, you listen to the Christian radio, and some of the songs on the Christian radio are if you have trouble getting your locker open. I mean, this is like major affliction in your life. You know, like, where is God? And, and, I mean, some of these songs that come out, and the kids love them. They gravitate to them because it's... And I understand what they're, they're, they're trying to say. Listen, God is with you. I mean, in, in, in the little things and in the big things, God is with you. And, he's, and, 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 and He is working all things together for, for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. I get that part, but it's as if we have this idea that that's somehow... That, that's per, as if we can compare not getting your locker open to what the, the, the church experienced in the book of Acts? I mean, that's, that's how far, and I'm saying, that's, but in every area, we've, this slide is taking place in the church, and I'm saying, it's why we're not really effective. I'm just saying, it's why churches aren't really effective in the end, because there's just no, no distinction anymore. And when you see the church in the book of Acts, what you see is a group of outsiders looking into the church in fear of what God, what is going on in there. It's, it's like they're in awe of what God is doing in the midst of these people. And these people are willing to lay their life on the line for the truth. And that's why you see, you know, the, the, the impact of what's going on in the book of Acts. That's, it, you, that, all that's going together. These people believed in the purity of the church. They believed in sound doctrine. They held to sound doctrine. They were serious about, they, about the way in which they related to one another in the body of Christ. And they didn't look at it like a social club. There was too much at stake. I mean, you just didn't go, show up at the church and, I kind of like this. This feels good. You didn't associate with the church. Because the church, that if you weren't serious, number one, you were fearful, Ananias and Sapphira, you were a little nervous about the, the issue of discipline in the church. And then not only that, but you had this external persecution and suffering that was coming down on the church. 
And so you just didn't just bop into church and, and just hang out with believers. I mean, there was too much at stake. You, you would disassociate from those people. And yet we're trying to make it the total opposite. We're trying to, to turn the church into a place where just anybody and everybody can come in and feel welcome. And again, it's not as if we're rude when visitors show up. I hope not. I mean, I hope that they're, that they're greeted with a smile and a handshake and that they, 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 they experience the love of Christ when they come. It's just what we're doing here. It, it, we're not trying to create something that is appealing to unbelievers. Because if they're unbelievers, then the gospel is it's an, it's an offensive thing. The truth is an offensive thing. Um, so anyway, that's, I, I just want us to keep that in mind. So when we think about, you know, it's, you don't want to get so zeroed in on chapter 2. You say, okay, this is what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to love our wives, supposed to love our husbands, and we're supposed to be relating. You have to see the implications of that kind of behavior and, and how that impacts the mission of what we're all about in the church. You, you've got to put those things Keep those things two together. All right. Now, the first group in the church Paul addresses here, the older men. Verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, and love and perseverance. Uh, Paul has uh, a couple of things to say about the older Christian men in the church, that they're to possess sound character, uh, sound in their faith, sound in their love, sound in perseverance. Uh, they're, they're, they ought to possess the, this kind of character, uh, this, this sound character that flows from sound doctrine. They're to also exhibit sound conduct. He mentions these words, temperate, dignified, sensible. So Paul says to Titus, the older men are to receive these two main exhortations, one to be mature in their character and, and one to be dignified in their conduct. And then I simply illustrated that with this pyramid, that it's all, it all rests on sound doctrine uh, then Paul says, for these older men, from that doctrine should arise sound character, and then out of that character in their lives should arise sound conduct in, in these different ways. Uh, then just like the older men, Paul says that there's a certain pattern of behavior that is expected of the older Christian women as well. Uh, there is a particular work that, they, that the Lord is, has for them to do. Verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women. So again, very similar to the older men, Paul, Paul's addressing those Christian women, generally speaking, who may have been as young as 50, more likely those even in their 60s and beyond. And he addresses them in a couple of areas. First, he addresses their uh, respectable behavior. He says that they're to be reverent, uh, referring to their demeanor, uh, the manner in which they behave, conduct themselves. He says that it should be very apparent by the way that they live that they are devoted to God and that this heart devotion and respectability should be manifested by the fact that, number one, they are not malicious gossips, and secondly, that they're not enslaved to much wine. So they're not malicious gossips. We say that you can translate They're not she-devils, right? It's this word for, for, for devil or slanderer. They're not, they're not slanderers. They're, they don't spread rumors about people. Uh, they don't say unkind things about others and damage their reputation, but exercise self-control in their speech, uh, refusing to listen to, much less propagate, slanderous or demeaning words about others. Uh, and then Paul says the older Christian women are not to be enslaved to much wine. So whether they are uh, lonely or facing difficult circumstances or being tempted by uh, their friends or people that they know, the older women, says uh, Paul says, are to always live under the control of the Spirit not getting drunk, not being mastered by any substance for that matter because this is not fitting for sound doctrine. 
or this, this kind of behavior does not agree with the truth. So whether it's their entanglement with wine, their drunkenness, or their failure to control their tongue, Paul says either out-of-control behavior would damage the credibility of the gospel. In other words, this kind of behavior would hurt, would, would injure, would hinder their ministry. And this was a big deal because the older women were given a very specific responsibility. And this was where he goes next. He talks about their responsibility to, to teach. Uh, the, the idea that the things that the older women have learned in the course of their Christian lives, that they are to be shared with others, particularly the younger women. So the older women are not to be self-absorbed. They're not to be just thinking about themselves, but they are to be modeling by example. And this phrase, teaching what is good. In other words, Paul says they're to be they're to be finding what is morally good, what is noble, what is attractive, and then teaching those things to others. First, first, informally, by their lifestyle. So they're they're modeling a life of service in the church. And then Paul says, using their life as an example and using their life as a platform, the older women should also be training by exhortation. Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women. In other words, the, the godly example of the older women in the body should enable them to more directly address the younger women concerning the ways that younger women ought to please God in their early days. And he uses this word encourage. We, we, we talked about this. It could be translated exhort or, or even train, um, the idea of teaching or admonishing. Uh, it, it, it has this idea of, of bringing someone back to their senses or wising them up. And so he's, Paul's saying that the older women ought to be bringing the younger women to their senses concerning the things that he goes on to talk about in, uh, at the end of verse 4 and in, into verse 5. So the older women are, are to be providing instruction that aims at helping younger Christian women to become moderate themselves, controlled, disciplined, curbing appetites and actions that they might otherwise indulge, helping them to cultivate good judgment and sensibilities. So we sort of pictured that this way. It's, it's with the older women, and again, it's, it's all rests on sound doctrine, and then out of that flows respectable behavior, and then this... Uh, responsibility to teach. So this is one of the key responsibilities of older of the older Christian women in the church. Encouraging, advising, uh, urging the young women to be the ladies and the wives and the mothers that God has called them to be. Now, if you are, if you are in that category, you'd put yourself uh, in that category of being an, an older, uh, more seasoned, mature uh, Christian woman... Uh, you may think that the manner in which the younger ladies in the church live is none of your business. You might think, I mean, well, that's, I'm not, that's not my business to get involved in how younger women are behaving themselves in the church. And I would say, well, according to the Scripture, that's absolutely wrong. It is your business. And again, I'm not talking about you know, sticking your nose in everything. I'm just saying that, that there's an interest and, and there's, there's an understanding that this is, this is the way that the church is, should be functioning. Uh, you need to find a way to get involved. If you're an older Christian woman, you, you need to find a way to get involved in the lives of younger women. Uh, the truth is, in many cases, there are more young women that desire for a godly, older, mature woman to help them than there are older women capable and willing to do that job. I mean, I think if you just 
took a survey and just asked a lot of those young Christian women, you know, would you like someone to, 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 to serve in that way in your life? You'd probably have more that were wanting and desiring that kind of mentoring and that kind of uh, help and assistance than, we, uh, than most churches would have even available or capable of doing that or willing to help in that way. Uh, sometimes you, you find this, that older women, uh, older Christian women selfishly put all their time and energy into their own children and grandchildren and don't reach out to anyone else. And I say that carefully because it's, I, I, I know there's, there is a priority. I mean, I know there's an, a priority on the family, and I understand that, a, uh, that, that grandparents do invest. I mean, they're going to invest a lot of time and energy into their own kids and grandkids. I'm just saying you cannot do that to the extent that you're not ministering in this kind of way in Titus 2. You have to find a way to be fulfilling this responsibility in, in the local church. So you just have to, you have to evaluate that and assess, you know, where are you spending your time and energy? Is it, is it, is it, uh, is, is it balanced? Is it, uh, are, you, are you being faithful in all of these areas? And then sometimes I think older women are simply afraid that the younger women are going to react uh, angrily or be offended. They're going to they're they're get in there and they're going to try to help, and then they're, they're a little nervous about the way in which that's going to be received. And in some cases, it probably isn't received uh, in the right way, and, and maybe there is some, some anger and some misunderstanding, but, uh, I mean, again, that doesn't, that doesn't let us off the hook. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't say, well, then, if that's the case, if you're, if you're afraid of that or if that's ever happened then, and you're an older Christian woman, that now, you, you can just say, well, then I'm not going to try that again or do that. You have to keep, you have to keep pressing forward, keep, keep attempting to, to do this because this is, this is God's plan for, for the church. Now, before we look at the content and the goal of this encouragement that the older women are to give the younger uh, women in, in the body, I, I want us to think a little bit about the flow of truth in, in the church. And, and I know every, all of these pyramids and circles and diagrams and stuff, are, they're helpful to a point. You probably are, every time I put one of these things up there, you probably go, you're missing the, this, or oh, what about that part? Or, well, I don't, I don't like the color scheme. I mean, I just wish you'd change the, the whole look of it. Or, I don't like a circle. I think a pyramid would have been better. I'll, I, I, these things only go so far, but I, I'm sort of a visual person. And so when I'm studying, I'm always thinking sort of in a way, I'm, th- I'm always thinking about pat- transferring truth. So I'm always thinking about how can I take this truth or maybe multiple truths and just put them in a way that, sort of package that in a way that I can pass it on to somebody else. So this week I just, man, I was at the whiteboard in my office. I had Shane involved. <laughs> I had my wife involved in this, just trying to just sort of picture all the different things that are going on here. How, how does truth flow through the life of the church? Well, uh, clearly all of these components and parts fall under the authority of Scripture. I don't care what capacity you play in the church you can only go as far as Scripture allows you to go, okay? So an elder doesn't have unrestricted, unrestrained authority. He, he, doesn't, he can't tell you what to do in every single decision of your life. He doesn't ha- that's not his jurisdiction. I mean, he's responsible to do certain things, but he's not responsible to come in and make all the decisions in your home. And so his li- he has limitations. Women, men, fathers, servants, we all have limitations, and yet we all have to understand there is... There are authority structures in the church, and there is a need for account- there's a need for accountability in those relationships. So how do you put it all together? Well, just sort of taking Titus here and some of the things we've talked about in previous weeks and months, we have elders, overseers, and shepherds, those who 
lead the flock. We have in, in sec, uh, Titus chapter 2, we have these various groups that, that specifically are mentioned, older men, young men, young women, uh, older women. And then we find various ministries or things that God calls elders or pastors to do in the body or for the body. They're called to equip the saints. Ephesians 4, they're called to proclaim Christ admonishing and teaching every man, Colossians 1.28, to exhort. This is the phrase we found in Titus 1.9, exhorting in sound doctrine. And in 2 Timothy 4, this idea of preaching and proclaiming the word. These are just, there's more, so don't, don't get hung up. There are others, but these are the four that I felt like were you know, pretty, pretty straightforward, uh, prevalent in, in the New Testament. These are, this is what pastors should be doing in worship today, in every evangelical church in this community, this is what a pastor should be doing. He should be equipping the saints, preaching the word, proclaiming Christ, exhorting in sound doctrine. Now we have some, and this is going on to all groups, right? And so it's, this is happening to, you're going to go and sit under a, a, in chains preaching in a minute. You're sitting under my teaching now. Uh, th- this is what's going on, and it's affecting really all of these groups in the church. Then we have this additional responsibility of elders and overseers, that we looked at in Titus 1, and that's this refuting those who contradict. So we, occasionally there are rebellious, factious men or women in, in the church, and so that's a responsibility of elders. And then we have an interesting focus in 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul uh, tells Ty, uh, Timothy that he is to entrust these things to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And so you have sort of a, uh, this sort of a, another prong of what an elder is to do, which is to specifically kind of target the men of the church, especially faithful men, and to spend, I would say, quality additional time training up those men because we understand the importance of that. I mean, this explains why we do a lot of what we do here at the church. There's a, there is an emphasis on this in our church because we see the impact that's going to have on the church down the road. We have to constantly be raising up future leaders in the church, and so we have that additional ministry then we have this idea of the older men uh, affecting and, and, and discipling and training the, the younger men and mentoring those men. We have this ministry in Titus 2, 4, and 5 of the older women teaching the younger women. And then within each of these two groups, we have singles and we have those that are married. So we have young men that are, that are not married, some that are. We have young women in the same, uh, some that are, are single, some that are, are wives. Uh, and then we have children, and so we have, through other passages we could bring in here, I mean, the husband clearly has a responsibility to be uh, teaching his wife, encouraging his wife, uh, leading his wife. We have husbands and wives, mothers, fathers that are training their, their children, and yet the children are still under what? They're still receiving instruction from the, the pastors and the elders. In other words, this, it's not as if it's exclusively just their fathers. They are receiving the benefits of this preaching ministry, of this teaching ministry, the, the, the body of Christ as a whole. And then we have these additional things over here, just the general commands, right, in Matthew 28 to make disciples. And think about all the one another's of the New Testament. Counsel one another, speak truth to one another, teach one another, encourage one another, exhort, exhort one another, comfort one another, admonish. So this is something that's not formal. It, this is something that, that happens in the hallway. I mean, you, you, you pull somebody aside in the hallway, how you doing? How, oh, I'm doing great. How was your week? They share a need, and then you're counsel, you might be counseling them right there in that situation or encouraging them or exhorting. There's a teaching. There's a transfer, Lord willing, 
of biblical truth that's going on in that conversation. That's on top of the preaching and the teaching and maybe what's going on in the home. And so here's my point. Uh, well, I, you're, well you're hoping, yeah, you were hoping it would get to a point, right? Uh, here, here's, here's, here's why I put this up here, because I want you to see these two things. There, it, when you, when you view the church in this way, what you see is this balance of recognizing God's ordained authority, whether it's in the home and marriage and parenting or with elders, whether it's with older women, younger women, all those things, but also a recognition of the need for mutual accountability. Because, listen, folks, one of your elders could derail one of your elders could go off the tracks, right, doctrinally. You would not c- continue to put yourself under the authority of a man who derails doctrinally, right? And yet we have sometimes, f- we have husbands that derail in their Christian life. And so when that happens, it's, it's not like we just say, well, you know, uh, we can't do a whole lot there for that wife because he's the authority over her and so he's the one that's supposed to be discipling his wife and the church doesn't have any part in that. No, that's not the way it works. That man does not operate independently from Scripture and the authority that God's given to him. I mean, he has to fall within those parameters. And so it's just, it, it's, more, it's more complex than you think. I, I, would love it, I would love it if this thing just sort of lined up. Like, this is the one that should be teaching this person, and this is the person that should be te- teaching this person. I've, I think we've seen this in the, some of you might be familiar with, say, the family integrated Churches, there's sort of a, there's, a, there's a movement to kind of structure the think of the church as a, as a family of families, and to highly emphasize the structure of the family. But the problem with that is they're not taking into consideration the function that the body plays in disciple making, or even the function of elders. I don't think they're they're trying to simplify something. And I know what they're trying to do. In a sense, I think they're trying to solve a problem, which is a lot of churches are undermining the family, or they're completely saying, "We'll train your kids. You don't need to do that at home." You know, we'll do all the discipling and all the training. Just put your kids in a classroom. We'll lead them to Jesus and, and, and ground them in the gospel. And you as a dad or mom don't have any part of that. They're trying to correct that problem. But in an effort to do that, I think they're just creating another problem. And so think of it this way. If you've got a young woman in the church, she's receiving corporate doctrinal and practical instruction from her elders, right? She should, biblically. But she's also receiving personal, doctrinal, and practical instruction from her. If she's married, she'd be receiving this from her husband. If she's, if she's single, she'd be receiving this maybe from her parents. But then you have this Titus 2 emphasis where the younger women are to be receiving personal, practical instruction from the older women. And then you have the personal, doctrinal, practical instruction from the body itself. And then on top of that, you have she's supposed to be studying the Word of God herself. So even though she's to be taught, she's not supposed to just close the book and say, just teach me. I'm, an, I, I'm just a blank slate. I'm, she's supposed to, every time she's taught something, go back to the scriptures and say, is it biblical? So this doesn't, all these ministries happening faithfully, that doesn't remove her own personal responsibility to be in the word of God all the time. And making sure that these other people that are teaching her, that they're not, again, going off track. So again, here's my point. It's not that simple because it's not one, two, three. It's overlap where a wife might be receiving instruction from her husband and from the leaders in the church and from an older woman in the church. And all those things are going on 
at different times and in different ways. And so we have to be careful to, we don't just take these things and try to put them in one, two, three, four. I don't think that's the way it works. I think it's designed to be, there's, there's this, this uh, it's much more complex than that. And so we just, I think we just have to be, we have to be careful. And, and I think what this does is it, it, it helps us to, it help, we have to find out where we are in this. And we have to find out, you know, what, is, what are our responsibilities to make disciples and, and to be involved in the lives of other people. And, and realize we, we have a part. We have a part. Older women have a part that they are to be playing in this church. Older men have a part they ought to be playing. Elders have a part. Husbands have a part. Parents have a part. We, we all ought to be taking advantage of and being faithful of these various ministries that God has given to us. And yet, even though we realize that there's overlap, again, it doesn't erase the authority structures that God has established. Right? Because none of these people have just unlimited, unrestrained authority. Every person that has authority, the limp, that they can only, again, their, 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 their authority only goes as far as Scripture allows them to go. They cannot go beyond that. So we have, we have to recognize there's, there's, a lot, there's a lot going on here, and it's all, it's all important. All of these things are important uh, and will ultimately impact, again, the, the, the mission, uh, what the church is, is called to do. Now, what exactly does Paul say that the older women are to train and encourage the young women to do? Verse 4, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So these, these words serve a dual function. Uh, they not only help the older women to understand their responsibility toward the younger women, but this also helps the young women to understand what kind of Christian women they themselves are to be. Now, this passage and others like it um, have been ridiculed, uh, reinterpreted by many even within the church. Uh, some claim that these verses, as well as others that deal with God-ordained roles of, of women, are sexist or chauvinistic or unfairly limiting, uh, that these principles are outdated and unnecessary, especially by women uh, that are or that feel unappreciated or exploited, uh, restricted or trapped by the traditional roles and opportunities for, for women. We just have to keep in mind that this, didn't, this, isn't a, this isn't something that the church just started dealing with. I mean, this is not just a problem that the church faces today. This, this battle of the sexes didn't begin with the 21st century feminism or Western uh, egalitarianism. Uh, it didn't even begin in the first century, for that matter didn't begin in the first century when Paul was writing this letter. It began in the Garden of Eden with the fall of Adam and Eve. So because, because of Eve, Eve's deception and because of Adam, both Adam and Eve's rebellion against the Lord, women would inherit the sinful propensity to usurp the authority of men, and men would inherit this sinful propensity to put women under their feet, feet or to abuse or misuse the authority that God had, had given to him. But here's the thing. The, the, original, the original design is not flawed. Okay? This, this structure, this, this God-ordained design is not, the design is not the problem. Uh, it's the heart of man that is corrupt. So differentiated roles were co- corrupted, not created by the fall. They are a reflection of God's best, not a response to our worst. So this rejection that we see all around us of the, of the biblical norms and the distortion of biblical sexuality is not new. In fact, it goes all the way back to our 
our first parents. Now, the mention here of husbands and children indicates Paul is dealing with uh, the norm or what is usually the case. Uh, The most common scenario is for a young woman to marry and to have children. Uh, We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that, that Paul had a very high view of singleness, particularly because of the special opportunity it provides for Christian service. And yet Paul recognizes the reality that, that most young women, and God, he knows God, God created marriage, marriage is good, this is the norm, and most young women uh, would become wives and mothers, and he gives these instructions, I think, to, to Titus uh, with that reality in mind. And the first area that Paul addresses in the lives of the young women, we could call it their domestic affection. And we'll just look at these first two phrases, and then we'll come back and pick up the rest next time. He says about this that the older women are to encourage and train the young women, in 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 this case wives, to love their husbands. Uh, Literally in the Greek, it's to to be husband lovers, uh, to demonstrate continuous habitual love. Uh, Now, especially in that day and in Paul's day uh, of often formal and arranged marriages, a woman that truly and deeply loved her husband would have stood out as a representative for the gospel and in the culture. Uh, therefore, Paul highlights this as this is the first in the order of, of duties for, for young wives. This is the priority of wives, young and old. Um, now, we know Paul's already talked about this in other places, uh, this topic, uh, this love between husbands and wives. He does this briefly in Colossians. He does it at greater length in Ephesians. Uh, in both of those passages, he addresses the husbands, uh, that a husband is to love his wife uh, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here in Titus, the picture is sort of rounded out. Um, uh, the love of a husband is to be matched by the love of a wife. And it sounds a little strange that, I mean, that, that, a, that older Christian women would have to teach and train younger wives to love their husbands. Uh, because prior to a wedding, a young woman might imagine that nothing could be easier than to love her husband. It's like... So, why do the older women have to train younger wives to do this? It doesn't seem like this ought to be a problem, but Paul knows better, right? Uh, he knows that this is not a naturally obtained discipline. This is something that is a part of a self-disciplined life which grows out of a self-disciplined mind. Uh, I mean, think about it. You've got the wife who's, who's, who's going to be dealing with her own sinful, selfish, and proud heart. I mean, she's got that to contend with in marriage. And not only that, but there are... Uh, there may also be things about a husband, right, that make, make loving him difficult, right? I mean, this is not going to be, this is not necessarily going to be uh, an easy thing because women and men are different. Uh, I found this, so this was a, just some differences between men and women. Some good examples here. Uh, a man will pay $10 for a $5 item that he wants, but a woman will pay $5 for a, 10 item, a $10 item that she doesn't want or need. A successful man, a successful man is one who makes more money than his wife can spend. A successful woman is one who can find such a man. <laughs> a, 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 a woman marries a man, this is true, a woman marries a man expecting that he will change, but he doesn't. A man marries a woman expecting that she won't change, but she does. I'm just quoting. These aren't my ideas. 
Here's another one. A, a, woman has the la- the, a woman has the last word in any argument. Anything a man says after that is the beginning of a new argument. <laughs> so Paul, Paul emphasizes this, this need for young wives to, to love their husbands because it's not natural. It's, it's not easy. And here is where the older, more experienced Christian women can help with appropriate counsel. Uh, what, what do you think are some of the ways that, some common ways young wives fail to love their husbands or common ways in which young wives sin against their husbands? Just give me a few examples. What do you think are some ways? Disrespect. Okay, not showing, not showing respect. Because men, respect is so important to them. And for us, it's not. So then we have a hard time when we realize... I mean, we don't like being disrespected, but that's not such a priority. But we get married, and all of a sudden, that's a big priority. And we're like, where did this come from? Okay, so a l- lack of respect, maybe a lack of support. What else? What would be a couple of other examples? Running their husbands down. Running their husbands down, okay. Uh, or sometimes comparing them to other men. I mean, I, I have I have heard these conversations. I've been in, pulled into these Situations where that's that happens sometimes uh, with with young wives, uh, they they tend to see the failures of their husbands and have this sort of glamorous, Im, Im, you know, uh, image in their mind of, of, of somehow that the other husbands in the church don't do these, don't say these things, don't act these ways. It's just their husband. What else? Somebody else going to mention one? Submission, yeah, that's uh, that's that's definitely an issue, and he'll, Paul will will address that. Uh, maybe a failure to forgive. I, I just see a lot of women now; just just they just won't let go. I mean, they have a very difficult time forgiving their their husbands. Uh, lack of contentment, maybe a, a lack of lack of gratitude. Paul says, "Listen." Wives are to love their husbands, to be fond of their husbands, to treat their husbands, consider their husbands to be dear, a dear friend, to cultivate a, a, a sweetness toward them, uh, to be willing to love them, to be determined to love them, not based on this man's worthiness, but based on the command of God and the example of Christ. Even unlovable, uncaring, and ungrateful husbands are to be loved. So Paul says, love him, you young, young wives, love your husbands with a love that is carefully built and nurtured. Do things for him whether you feel like doing them or not. Give yourself for his sake, not for the sake of appreciation or returned love um, or favor. I mean, think, think what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? But yeah, we get caught up in that, right? I mean, we love, but then we expect... We do that for for a return. Paul says this is this is this is fitting for sound doctrine. Love your husbands. This is a work of grace. This settled discipline of marital love is a is a deeper and a more advanced kind of love that does not naturally arise from within. It is something that must be received from the Lord and taught by the church. And it's the complete opposite of what society is saying today to young wives. The culture is not encouraging young wives to love their husbands. The culture is encouraging young wives to love and to follow their own way and to love whomever they want, whenever they want. 
And there's nothing unique, there's nothing powerful, there's nothing attractive about that. So we'll stop there. I'm going to give you the last word. When we come back, we'll pick up this additional phrase, this emphasis on not just loving husbands but loving children, and then we'll walk through this, uh, the, the, uh, all of verse 5 it, it, and kind of wrap up the other things, the other instructions that Paul gives to Titus concerning what older, the older Christian women are to be teaching the younger Christian women. Yes, sir. Well, I would just, you know, I just to share that, that patience is such a beautiful virtue of the mind. I speak to that personally just out of the struggles that I think every one of us as a father and a husband have just to lead um, as the Lord has called us to and how how frankly difficult that is and how constantly under attack that is for the reasons you just described and just the patience of, to see it in a relationship and to get experience it's such a blessing to experience that patience that realizes that that's not right it's not um, you know it, 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 it needs to continue to be sanctified but to have the patience to continue to pray for that and to nurture that um, both ways of course but, but coming from is to me when I experience it, it, it encourages that, um, and how quickly I know in other parts of my life how quickly that opposite behavior discourages the very thing that you're trying to do. So that that patience I think is so key, and it comes down to just realizing we're all just such huge works in progress. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and think about this: to not do these things. For the older men and the older women and the younger women and the younger things we'll talk about with the young men, for, for, the, for those people to not live the way that the scriptures call them to live, think about the impact that has on the church down the road. I mean, that's the thing is that young wives don't think about the implications of not loving their husband now. One of these days, those younger wives are going to be the older women if they remain faithful. They'll be the older women. And then and the question is, are they going to be equipped and prepared to turn around and to train the younger women in the church to do those very things when they haven't really modeled or done those things themselves? And that's the issue is that we, we're so short-sighted sometimes that, again, we're making all these compromises and we're forfeiting all these things and we're not thinking about 20 years down the road. We're not thinking about the next generation and really preparing the next generation and we're not thinking about the, the consequences of the choices that we're making. So, so as young wives, Paul, Paul's just saying, you know, this is, these are your responsibilities. Uh, be faithful in those things so that you will also have this platform. You will also have this opportunity down the road to encourage and to train the younger women in, in the body of Christ. And for all those different groups of people that we're going to look at, that, that's the case is we've got to look down the road. We've got to see the impact that the decisions we're making today are going to have on the future of, of the church. And again, if we, if we compromise and we fail in these, these ways, uh, these relational aspects of Christian living, then we, ha- we, ha- we have to realize this is going to affect the, the mission. This is going to affect the, the impact that we have. Uh, we won't be planting churches and we won't be training up godly men 20 years from now, if, we, if we're failing in these kinds of ways, you, you, we, just, we won't continue to keep those priorities in their proper place. 
So all of these things are so important. And um, so we'll come back. We'll, we'll look at uh, next week. We'll, we'll finish out this uh, section on the younger uh, women, wives, mothers, and uh, take a couple of weeks off. I'm, I'm filling in for Shane for a couple of Sundays while he's in Croatia. Uh, the 15th and the Sunday following that, I'll be uh, preaching. So uh, I'll have someone filling in for me for a couple of Sundays and then come back and we'll pick up with the younger men. So.